Well, good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, the lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. Uh, if you're a visitor, I'd like to add my welcome. We're glad that you're here. And for our church family, welcome. It's good to see you guys, and it's good to be with you worshiping this morning. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're coming in a few weeks into a new series on worship called Vital Worship, talking about the importance of worship in our lives as followers of God and uh, the formative nature of our worship as well. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at text from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. If you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 968 of that Bible. As Camper mentioned uh, earlier, we're going to be talking about tithes and offerings this morning. Uh, as each week in the series, we're talking about one of the different elements of worship, one of the, uh, the gestures of worship, we've used that term, that we, uh, that we participate in together on a Sunday morning and how that could then affect the way we think about worship throughout the week and throughout our lives. So uh, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that we have before us. And we are people who are in constant need of your wisdom and of your goodness and your perspective and your truth speaking into our lives. And certainly we need that in the area of thinking about our money. Lord, would you be with us this morning? Would you open up your word to us and open your word to our hearts? And even as we remembered at the very beginning of this service, you so generously call us without money and without cost that we might come into relationship with you we might know wholeness and peace through Jesus. So we thank you for that great gift of salvation. And in light of that great gift, would you teach us um, how, how to use and how to think about the many gifts you give to us in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This comes in the context of a couple chapters of Paul speaking to the church in Corinth about an offering that he is taking up at their church and then all the churches in the Mediterranean that Paul has been planting for the good of the suffering poor who are in the church in Jerusalem. Um, they are uh, very much suffering, and so he is taking up offerings from these churches around uh, the Mediterranean world to meet their needs. So that's the immediate context of what's going on here. Beginning with chapter 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must, be, must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Okay, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many people thought about money this week? 
You know, I could stand up here any week and, and ask that question, uh, but certainly this week as uh, you know, we watch the news and we hear about $700 billion bailouts and, and the trouble with the economy, uh, and it you know, brings up in a very vivid way on a week like this, how, how do you think about your money and how are you responding when there's news, for example, of an, of an economic uh, potential trouble? Um, are you responding with disinterest? Okay, well, I mean, that may actually be true for a few people. You know, I... You know, you're thinking, I don't have any stocks. I, you know, that's, that's not going to affect me. Uh, but for most of us, though, maybe some way we find ourselves connected. Maybe you respond with some sort of fear and anxiety. Or, or maybe uh, you've been in this investing game long enough that you know it's, it's not going to do you any good to give in to fear and anxiety. Because you know that the deal with the stock market is that you have to put your faith in the long haul. Okay, they're ups and they're downs. But in general, over time, things pay off. And so your faith is in the long haul. Or maybe your faith is in some version of the prosperity gospel. You know, if I'm following Jesus, somehow he's going to make everything be all right. I'm going to, finance, I'm going to prosper financially no matter what happens in the world around me. And he's going to give me all my goodies and more to spare. Or maybe this week you find yourself clinging um, more closely to home to the real gospel. We have a God who loves us in Jesus. And he promises to take care of us in good times and in hard times. Something like the real gospel. But no matter what, it brings up questions on a week like this about what do you love and what do you trust? What are you looking to that's going to hold on to you and give you safety in this life? So maybe it's a perfect week for us to talk about what we've been planning to talk about for a long time. Uh, tithes and offerings as we um, look at this topic and this aspect of our worship. Now, as you hear that as the topic of today, did you feel sort of that internal, you know, something just sort of tightens up a little bit? Uh, you know, maybe you're a visitor and you're thinking... One more church, and all they do is talk about money. At the end of the day, somebody's going to want me to open up my wallet and give more. Uh, and maybe that's just confirming all the fears maybe you have about walking into a church. Or, uh, you know, maybe you've been here for a while, and, and, and maybe, you, you know, maybe you trust me not to manipulate you or mysteer you, but uh, maybe you've got a, a, another sort of deep-seated anxiety, which is, I'm not so worried about God, or I'm not so worried about Brandon messing with, with, messing with me, but I am worried about God messing with me. And I am worried about him putting his finger on this area of my life. Well, if that's the case, let me just remind you of uh, a verse comes from John chapter 10, verse 10, as Jesus is speaking to his people. He says uh, to them that I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean the financial full, but it means that he comes to give us the gift of reconciliation in the presence of the Father, the healing of that in our lives. So any word that the Lord speaks into our lives about any subject of our lives. He comes in order that we might know deeper life. He comes to us for our good. So when he comes and puts his finger on this area of our lives, that is his intention as well. Not that we would somehow be restricted in life, but that we would know life more fully than we do even now. Do you believe that could be true right now? That God would come and speak to you about your finances and how you think about money in order to draw you close to him. He might actually pour life into you. Well, that's what he tells us. So this morning, as we look at 2 Corinthians, we're going to be talking about uh, stewardship, but most specifically about money. Now, we can talk about stewardship in lots of regards, our stewardship of our time and of our talents and, and so many things that God pours into our life. But this morning, we're speaking specifically about how to think uh, about stewardship with, with our money. And so here in uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it's going to point us to what it means to, to give to the Lord as an act of worship. And, and this passage helps us get that idea by helping us understand, uh, well, to, to do a couple things. First, to under, it shows us how to understand our money. 
Okay? It speaks into helping us understand our money, uh, how to unlock our money, and how to give our money. Okay? So three things. Understand our money, unlock our money, and give our money. First, uh, understand our money. Maybe this goes without saying, but you know, uh, as, as Christians, as we gather together and we gather around God's word, we believe that it speaks to us about God's will and his goodness uh, for what it means for us to live in his presence. So doesn't it make sense that as with every other area of our life, that we would come to him so that he might instruct us here also? Money is something that we all wrestle with, our finances, uh, what to do with the things that we are given, how to think about the things we are not given. And so we come to the Bible to ask our questions. Second Corinthians speaks into this. Um, and in understanding our money, okay, this, this first topic, we're going we're gonna to split that up into two parts. We're going we're gonna to see what it tells us about the source of our wealth and the purpose of our wealth. Okay, now when I use the word wealth, again, many of you have just shut your brain off. You're like, I'm not, I'm not wealthy. I'm a poor college student or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of wealth in terms of whatever uh, material uh, prosperity God has given you, and even if that's, you know, the two bucks in, in your wallet right now, that is all wealth. And so he speaks to us whether you're, um, you know, whether you are uh, very wealthy in the eyes of the world or whether you're not. He speaks to all of us about this. So first, source of our wealth. Uh, where does your wealth come from? Where, we're talking about money. Where does your money come from? Where does it come from? Um, some of us think it just comes out of this little machine and you type in some numbers and it spits it out. Uh, you know, but you know, where, where does that come from? Does it come from uh, your hard work? You know, it's a salary that you earn from your job and you work hard at your job and you, you've been rewarded at that over time as you've earned more and more trust and a larger and larger salary. Your, salary, your, uh, your money comes from your own hard work and your own effort. Or your own cleverness and your intelligence, uh, your great business skills. Or maybe for many of us, you know, our, our wealth comes from our ability to just really save prudently and invest wisely. Or maybe some of us, you know, you, there's inheritance money that, that you have or are expecting. You know, where does your wealth come from? Well, in one sense, all those things are true. But in a deeper sense, uh, th- there's something that, that lies much more foundationally. The Bible tells us our wealth comes from God. That it comes from God, however, he, whatever means he might have used to bring that into your hands. Uh, and we see that in, in verse 10 here in, in our verses this morning. Uh, it's talking about God. It talks about, he says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Okay, what's going on? He's talking about God providing seed for the sower. You know, he, he gives the sower the seed he's going to go out and use in the field to work hard and to farm. Okay, so he gives us the, the raw materials from which we make wealth. But he also talks about giving us the bread for the reaper as well. He gives us the final product as well. Okay, all our hard work, all those things behind it all stands God who gives both seed for the sower and and bread for us as well, the raw materials and the final product. Uh, You know, your raw material, where'd you get your, where'd you get your intelligence? Where'd you get that lucky break? Where did you get your good work ethic? Where did you get the opportunities you have been given? All things come from the hand of our Father. Uh, there's an interesting passage in First Chronicles where King David, at the end of his life, is, is handing over the reins to his son Solomon. And part of the responsibility he gives Solomon is to build the temple for God. And David has been involved in, uh, in collecting the money that's going to pay for this. And here in First Chronicles chapter 29, there's this prayer that he prays as this money has just been given by all the leaders of Israel. And let, let me pull out just a couple things from this prayer. He says... Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. <clears throat> All that is in the heavens and the earth 
is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And so we thank you, God. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. O Lord, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. What's he saying? Every cent that we've raised to build the temple, this all comes from you. We are only giving back to you what you have given us to begin with. That all things, that all wealth comes to us from the hand of God. So this is the first thing that we're going to have to understand if we're going to think Christianly about our wealth, that everything comes from his hand, that the money in your savings account comes from his hand. The money in your checking account, your stocks, your investments, your uh, earning potential, any inheritance that may one day come your way, all comes from God. And all of it belongs to God. Okay, the source of our wealth. Second half of uh, this first point, not only the source of our wealth, the purpose of our wealth. Okay, let me ask you this. What is your money for? What's your money for? Now, I'm not talking about uh, just this one little bit of money, you know, the money you've got in your pocket for lunch today. This, this money is for pizza or whatever. What, what is your money for? And is that a question you ever ask? More globally, what is our money for to begin with? All this money that we chase after and money we legitimately need, what is this money for? Now, there is uh, plenty in Scripture about God's good and gracious gifts and the world he's given it to us to enjoy. And he cares about your material needs and he provides for them. So money is certainly for that. But this passage tells us something foundational about money that it's easy for us to forget. Uh, That uh, it challenges us on the point of what is our money for. Okay, let's look and see what it says in the passage. Verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, having everything you need, you may abound in what? In every good work. What's he saying? God is providing for you so that you may abound in every good work, that you might use it well. We'll explain that more in a minute. Verse 10. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of what? Of your righteousness. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, if you look up in the verse right above that and gives this <clears throat> quote, he says, God has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, what it's talking about right here when it talks about God's righteousness is his covenant uh, promise faithfulness to his people. His promise to love his people, he says, God provides for the poor. He provides for his people because he's a God who keeps his promises. And that is his righteousness. Okay, so then in in the next verse when it talks to us, uh, give you bread for food, supply and multiply your seed for sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? That we participate in God's righteousness. That just as God is faithful to meet the needs of his people, that we use our goods as well for the purposes of his kingdom, that we mirror his righteousness. And then in verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings 
to God. What's he saying? That all this money that he's raising for this offering, what's it going to do? It is going to result in thanksgiving to God. In praise to him by those who benefit from it. First to last, as Paul speaks about our money, he says, this is given to you that you might use this to good ends in God's kingdom. Uh, in other words, it speaks of money as a currency of blessing. A currency that we use for the blessing of others and to further God's purposes for his kingdom ministry and care for others. That is the purpose of our wealth. Okay, second point, unlocking our money. First, understanding our money. Now, unlocking our money. What do, what do I mean? Well, my kids are into pirates right now, especially our three-year-old son. Uh, everything's about pirates. He has a little sword that he waves around. He's broken it about four times. It's more duct tape than sword, but we keep, we keep fixing that thing. And you know what the deal is with pirates? They <clears throat> collect treasure. Now, we'll, we'll bypass for a minute how pirates actually get their treasure. We haven't really talked about that with our three-year-old. Uh, <clears throat> so pirates get treasure. Then what do they do with it? They put it in a chest, and they lock it up, and they go bury it in the sand somewhere, and they have this very elaborate map that leads you to your treasure, right? Okay, now we all have treasure of one kind or another. And specifically, we're talking about our financial treasure and money this morning. And how do we think about that? Jesus puts his finger on it in this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, whatever you are making this central treasure in your life, that is what has your heart. And going to the pirate you know, example, uh, the thing that has your heart is the thing that's going to unlock that treasure chest. Okay, because you all have things, I have things in my life that I don't mind going to that treasure chest, following the map, digging it up, opening the lock so that I can spend it on certain things. There's something that turns the lock, the key that turns the lock for your treasure. And it is the thing that you have set your heart on. That is the key to your treasure chest. So what have we set our hearts on? Let, let me give you an example. I borrowed from another pastor, Tim Keller, who was very helpful for me in lots of ways in this sermon. But here's the illustration he gives. Let's say you find it very difficult to give money towards, uh, towards ministry in God's kingdom, towards charity. You find it very difficult to really give much in any substantive way there. But you find it very easy to spend money on clothes. Okay? It's like falling off a log, you know? New pair of shoes, a new shirt, the whatever. You find it very easy to spend money on clothes. What's going on there? Well, maybe what's going on is uh, that you, you've, put a, you've put a high stock in your image and your ability to look beautiful or look handsome to the world around you, the ability to look like you have it all together. And in some way, the treasure of your heart has become that sort of persona you try to pr project to the world and you measure that in terms of the things that are in your closet. Or use another example. Maybe, maybe it's not clothes for you. Maybe you two find it difficult uh, to give money towards, uh, towards you know, kingdom purposes, towards ministry, towards charity, but you find it very easy to spend money on your house, right? Uh, maybe that is the new furniture that's coming in. Maybe that is the, the kitchen renovation or the landscaping or, or you name it. You find it very easy to, to spend money on your house. Because at some level, maybe your house is, is what you're looking to for some sort of uh, status symbol, maybe. Or maybe just for security and comfort. You look to it in your house. Or in, there's some of us in, in this next category, too. Maybe it's not your house and maybe it's not your clothes. In fact, you're actually sort of disdainful of the person 
and you wouldn't say it this way, and you, you certainly wouldn't express this way to your friends, but in, inside you're sort of disdainful of the person who goes and blows all their money on clothes or even, you know, has to pour it in to their house or does anything so frivolous and, uh, you know, irresponsible with your money because everybody knows that money is for saving. And for you, you find it incredibly easy to put money in savings. You love when you get your paycheck getting online and doing that transfer from your checking account to the savings account or sending it into your broker or however you save your money. You're not going to be the one out blowing your money, you know. Savings is, is what it's all about. So maybe you have a lot of trouble, too, thinking about your money as a kingdom resource. But instead, you know, for you to save takes no effort at all. Why? Because your bank account is your savior. That's the thing you're looking to for security in good times and in bad. Okay, what is going to unlock the treasure chest of our hearts, the thing that we love? And the thing that you love is already unlocking the treasure chest of your life. And what is it? Well, what does Scripture point us to that might be better than some of the things we look to? It points us straight back to the gospel, to the goodness of God towards us in His Son, Jesus. Look at the way uh, this gets expressed in a couple places. Look at verse 9. Again, it talks about uh, God. It says that He is distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. What does it say? God takes care of His people who need Him. And Paul's talking about certainly about the financial needs that they have, but the gospel tells us that God comes to us people in incredible spiritual need and poverty, and God meets us right at that point of need in the person of his son with the forgiveness and the love and the care that we need. Now, some of us got more of a systematic uh, theology lesson today than we'd had in many years or ever as our kids stood up here and talked about the weight and the seriousness of our sin. It, it was funny, that one line about, uh, you know, sin has come in and made me miserable. But that's for real, right? It's brought misery. It's brought brokenness. It's brought broken relationship. And the gospel tells us that in Jesus, God has come to heal that. He's come to poor people like us, that he might make us rich in Christ. Now, we get this in a more focused way. Look down at verse 15. Very end of this passage, what does Paul say? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What does Paul continue to come back to time and again here and elsewhere? He comes back to the goodness of Jesus for us. God's gift of salvation that comes to us in Christ. He says, how are you going to ever unlock the treasure chest of your heart? Only if you have a treasure that's not going to run out. Only if you're going to stake yourself on a treasure that is going to meet you in your deepest needs. And what does he say? That treasure for us is Jesus. He puts it this way in, in Romans chapter 8. He says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's he saying? God has paid the most expensive, the, the most vital price for your life. He has given the life of His Son so that you might no longer be under the wrath of God. You may no longer be on the outside looking in, but rather be brought into God's family and healed and reconciled. He has paid that price for you. How will He not also meet your every need? But He says, first, our first treasure is Jesus. Do you really believe that's true for you? If you... Um, been coming here for a while, you're a professing Christian, you know that's supposed to be the answer. You know, is it? Is that the treasure for us? Now, let me be careful so that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
This is not uh, subtle guilt manipulation that would sound a little bit like this. Look at all Jesus did for you. And you're telling me you can't open up your wallet and give a little cash? Right? Look at him hanging on the cross there for you, and you're going to be stingy now? Uh, it's not guilt motivation. Here it, here's what it is. Giving that comes in line with our joy. That comes from our heart. Because the truth is, I would tell you to continue to spend your money exactly how you always spend your money in this way. Give your money to the thing that has your heart. That's what you're doing right now. That's what I'm doing right now. Continue to do that. But here's what the gospel says. That Jesus would have our heart. That he would be our treasure. So then when we go and use our money as we use everything else in our life, it would be in line with that. Not as a source of guilt motivation, but because that is our joy. Because that is where we find our life. In other words, as the gospel gets more and more a hold of our hearts, then what we're pointing each other to is this. Give to the thing that you love. And the only one who really fundamentally and unbreakably loves you. Now here's the way Paul goes on to, uh, to uh, spell that out. And third point, uh, not just understanding our money or unlocking our money, but worshiping with our money. And I think we see a lot about this in verse 7. Look again in verse 7 with me. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now we're going to take the three parts of this verse in reverse order. First, cheerful. Okay, the Greek word for cheerful here is the word that we get our English words uh, exhilarating and hilarious. Exhilarating and hilarious. And he says that's the kind of cheerful giving that you're to have. There is supposed to be something that arises from you spontaneously and joyfully in response to the gospel because it's what has your heart. Now think about it just in contrast to this. Uh, you know, a number of months ago, and we, we all did this, and a number of months we're going to do it again, you're going to get your tax return. You're going to fill out your taxes. Now one of the things that you'll notice on your tax return, in spite of the many, many questions it asks you and the many blanks you have to fill out, there's no blank that says this. Did you enjoy giving your taxes this year? How was that for you? You know, Rate your satisfaction on the scale from, from 1 to 10. Um, why doesn't it say that? Because at the end of the day, the IRS does not care how you felt about giving your money. They just don't. What do they want? They want your money. Okay? Now, God does not simply want your money. And if he did, then he would not include a detail like this, that God loves a cheerful giver. Because what does that do? That gets you well beyond the realm of how much, how little, how, how do I spend my money, what do I give, right to the attitude and the motivation of your heart. And if you have uh, children or have raised children, or maybe you find this in the grips, uh, uh, yourself in the grips of this yourself as a child, you know, your parents, they, they can, they can uh, bring and elicit a certain amount of external obedience, right? Okay, so when my kids... Somebody hits somebody, runs somebody over, we tell them to say, I'm sorry, okay? And it can come out like this, I'm sorry, right? Okay, external obedience, we can, we can sometimes put our finger on that. But as a parent, you know, that doesn't go nearly deep enough. It's not enough simply to say, I'm sorry. What are you trying to cultivate and help cultivate in your children? A heart that really cares about others. That really is sorry when you offend others. The IRS doesn't care about that. They just want your money. God doesn't just want your money. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. And so he speaks this way and he says, I want you to be a cheerful giver because I want you to know the joy of my salvation. And I want that to pour out in a life filled with joy and generous giving. 
from a cheerful heart. Uh, You may remember, I've told the story before, but as I think about generous giving, my my wife and I, a couple years ago, we uh, went to visit a a church um, in Charlotte where Elizabeth grew up, and one of our best friends is one of the pastors there, and and we occasionally support this church financially. And so we were going to give a gift there in the offering time, and the basket's going around, and, you know, you get ready to have that sort of glance with your spouse, like, okay, how much are we going to do this for? So I had this number in my head, and knowing my wife to be the woman that she is, I took my number and I doubled it. Uh, and so I, I leaned over, I can't remember if we wrote it out or leaned over and spoke, and found out that Elizabeth's number was four times my doubled number. Um, and... <clears throat> In the day, we, we, we went with Elizabeth's number. Uh, <clears throat> why? Because I know that God has put right in the center of my life someone who knows something more than I do about what it means to be a cheerful giver. There would be people who respond to the beauty of the gospel and want to uh, have that pour out in us, even in such practical ways as the money that we give, uh, in this case, to a, to a friend's church. Because cheerful givers are eager to give. They count it a privilege to give. And their eyes are open opportunities to give because giving in this way is in line with their joy their treasure chest has been open and they're free and glad to give okay first thing cheerful second thing we see in verse seven here is that giving is to be unforced and the way paul says it here is not reluctantly or under compulsion okay first reluctantly uh, opposite of cheerful, right? You know, people who give reluctantly, they are uh, the people who are the target of fundraising drives, okay? Now, I, I've been uh, the target of that, as maybe you have as well. Uh, a number of years ago, before the, the car, the radio in my car gave out, uh, you know, as I was on my way, this was at seminary at the time, I was back and forth, I'd listen to public radio. And I, I learned to dread those, uh, you know, those weeks when it's the fun drive. Now, when I was growing up, it seemed like that happened like once a year, and now it seems like it happens like every three weeks. But, uh, you know, in, in any case, you, you turn it on a Monday morning, and it's the first day of fun drive. And I would just, you know, sigh and, and be in dread, and I'd try to, you know, just sort of hum or something through the pitches for my money and get back to the news. But over the course of the week, I'd find that my resolve began to crumble, right? I mean, you can only listen to somebody asking for your money so many times. And then towards the end of the week, over dinner, Elizabeth and I were talking. I said, I, I, I gave to the public radio fun drive. And she looked at me with this look like, you're weak. And <laughs> I am. Uh, and maybe you've had the similar experience. But the point is simply this, that God is not in, in to fun drive. Okay? He's not in to coercing reluctant giving. What does he say? That we are not to be reluctant. And then the second thing is, he says we're not to give under compulsion. Uh, you know what happens, again, back to the IRS, if you don't pay your taxes, what happens? Well, they can garnish your wages. Somehow your wages can evaporate before it even makes it into your monthly or weekly check. And, uh, or, you know, you, you successfully evade them long enough, you can go to jail for tax evasion. Uh, you know, the government can force you to give under compulsion. And God says, I'm not going to work that way either. That's not my intention for my people, that they would give reluctantly or under compulsion because those things together are the opposite of what it means to be a cheerful giver. Okay, so it's cheerful, it's unforced, and then lastly we see right at the beginning of this verse, verse 7, that it's to be thoughtful and deliberate. Okay, here's the way Paul says it. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Okay, there's, there, this just speaks to some sort of proactivity in giving. 
Okay, he's speaking to them about this offering they already knew about. He says, I, I want you to plan for this. I want, you to, I want you to pray about it. I want you to think about it. I want you to decide what, you, what God would have you set aside for this offering. I, I want you to enter into it with your eyes wide open that you'd be committed to giving. Now, as soon as we talk about giving, it, it brings up this question. You know, what's the place of tithing? Okay? Uh, of the biblical practice of giving a tenth of your income. Okay, if you were to look in the Old Testament, it is very clearly a command, and it's reiterated many places in the Old Testament, that God's people were to give 10% of their income every year uh, to the temple, to God's house, for the ministry that took place there. And that ministry was varied. It was the support of the priests and the temple. It was the support of the poor throughout the culture. The temple did all, all kinds of things. And so they were to give a tenth uh, of their income to that. Now, when you get to the New Testament, it's interesting that the, the tithe is only mentioned once in the whole New Testament. And, and it comes in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. And Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. These are the religious professionals of the day. And they're the ones who often got so much of Jesus' um, rebuke because in spite of all their legalistic righteousness, they missed the point of what it means to be in relationship with God. And so he speaks to these Pharisees. And here's what he says. And I'll, I'll explain it a little bit. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect the justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What's he saying? Okay, Pharisees, woe to you, because you go into your garden and you take 10% of your basil plants and give those to God's temple, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, that in spite of your tithe that goes down to the minutest detail of your life, in spite of that, that there are poor and suffering and God's purposes all around you that you won't enter into because your heart is hard and only looking to this one fact. What is, what's the bare minimum I'm supposed to give? What is God's standard so that I can meet that and then not have to worry about the world around me? And they're rebuked for that. And then the tithing in and of itself is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. And, and here, here's why I think that is. I don't think that tithing is a New Testament injunction for God's people. I don't think it's a New Testament command. It's never reiterated in any way except for this one place. Now, let me say that with one uh, very serious caveat as well. Think about what happens in the transition that happens from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Okay? Old Testament, contrary to some people's belief, uh, also paints for us a picture of a God of love who pursues his people. But we come to the New Testament and we see with the death and resurrection of Jesus just how deep that love runs just how beautiful that goodness to us really is. And we see in the Old Testament, you know, God's favor poured out on his people. And then we see in the New Testament how that works out in God's body, the church. And in so many ways, in this transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's as if the world just opens up more glorious and more beautiful in Jesus than God's Old Testament people even knew as they looked ahead to the coming of Christ. And we, as people who live on this side of the coming of Jesus, have that so much more in its fullness so much more of the privileges and the goodness of God shown to us so clearly in the person of Jesus. God himself who comes to earth, lives a perfect life for us, dies the death we deserve that we might have life. We see how costly God's love and goodness and grace really is. And he pours it out on us. First John speaks of the love of God being poured out on us, overflowing on us. Now let me ask you this. In the Old Testament, God's very specific re re uh, requirement of them was that in response to my love and my relationship with you, you're to give a 10% of what you give back. 
doesn't it make sense that as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament and see the glory of the gospel poured out so much more abundantly for us, is it even possible that we would think that somehow our giving should be less than that of the Old Testament? We have so much more we see to be thankful for, so much more of a taste of the richness and the goodness of God's grace. And we see so much more clearly what he is doing in our lives, making us into people who live in light of his goodness and love and find our security in him. Could it be possible that he suddenly doesn't care about our money now? I think maybe what the Bible's or New Testament's relative silence about tithing really points to is this. Remember, Jesus said, I'm not faulting you, Pharisees, for tithing. I'm faulting you for not having greater concern than that. I think maybe a better New Testament picture of our giving is that tithing is actually uh, a beginning point. Okay? It, in, in one sense, it's, it's sort of the, the starting point of living a life of generous response to gener- God's generosity to us. So even saying that, for some of us in this room, to really take tithing seriously, just to start there, I mean, that would be a radical shift in life for us. Maybe it terrifies you to even think about that. How could I possibly even begin to think about 10% of what God gives me, giving back, plowing back into his kingdom and his ministries? How would I even think about that? Or maybe for some of us, and that's a challenge in and of itself, maybe for some of us, you, you know, you grew up and... You know, you were tithing from the time you were age three and your parents gave you a nickel to put in the offering plate. Maybe a question for us is, you know, are we looking at that as some sort of legalistic standard hoop that we jump through so we don't have to think about our money anymore? Or is it possible for us as we grow in the grace of Jesus and seeing that poured out to us that we need to think more about what does it mean to live a life of generous response and generosity and cheerful giving? Because the gospel is what has the key to our treasure chest. Maybe that's where we need to be pushed a little bit on that. Um, and l- let me just say about what, we, what you do with that money, that as you pray and as you think and as you set that aside to give in response to God's goodness to you, let me say that uh, I don't think that all of that has to come to your local church. Now, some folks might believe otherwise or tell you otherwise, uh, but I do think that for all of us as believers, we're challenged to think very carefully about how do we live lives of cheerful, generous giving. And there are lots of places, lots of ministries in God's kingdom where that money needs to be plowed in and used for good effect. Okay, so are we scared that if we start telling people that, that we're not going to make budget here at the church? Well, let me say this. Um, of course, your local church, this church, needs you to give because we're involved in ministry together here. But the truth is, maybe if all of us, as we all grow in the grace of giving, if we actually gave more and more in line with the gospel, in biblical proportions, um, again, as one uh, pastor says, you know, there'd be enough money to float all the boats. We wouldn't have to worry about is there enough here as well as the other ministries that we care about. Imagine if in the United States alone, this one piece of uh, the world that contains many following Jesus, if all God's people, even in our own country, really took uh, biblical giving seriously, do we not think there would be enough to plow generously into the ministries that God has made available and continues to bring up? Isn't there enough out there? There is. There is. As we think about and use our money biblically. Okay, let me just try to wrap up very briefly this, uh, this way. Again, God doesn't simply want your money. It would be too small a target for him to aim for. He wants your heart, and he wants my heart, and he wants the key to the chest, because that heart 
is the one that he is drawing to himself, making more and more to look like the image of Jesus who so graciously gave himself for us. And I think maybe it would be helpful for us just to end where this passage begins. Look at verse 6. He says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, what's he saying? Use an agricultural image. All things being equal, the farmer that goes out in his field and throws a little bit of seed out is going to get a little bit of harvest. And the farmer that goes out and throws out a lot of seed is going to get a lot of harvest. And what does he say? As you think about your money in these terms, Paul encourages us, as God encourages us, to sow generously, that we might reap generously. But go right back to the point of this passage. What does reaping generously mean? Seeing this used bountifully in God's kingdom, that's the harvest. Seeing God's kingdom grow as he allows us to be a part of seeing that happen, even in the most mundane ways of giving our money. And we haven't spoken at all this morning of all the fuller picture of giving our very lives, of giving our time, giving our hearts. But here we see that. That applies, too, with giving our money. Will we be people who sow generously so that we might reap generously as we give towards the joy of our heart in gracious response to our good and loving Savior, Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would free us to be cheerful givers. Would it become easy for us? Because would we be so captured by the beauty of Christ, so astounded by the goodness of your love poured out in our lives? Would that be uh, the very meat that we, the meat that we eat and the, the very beautiful wine that we drink, the goodness of the gospel poured out for us, would that do its good work in us and make us grateful and generous people, cheerful people, joyful people, as we see more and more what our money is for? Would you free us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.